Welcome back to episode number 216 of the Dust Safety Science Podcast. This is the podcast we're building a global community around process safety and issues handling combustible dust. I'm your show host, Dr. Chris Cloney. In today's episode, we are discussing fake ATEX products and fake certificates. We're doing that with Terry McDonald, sales and business development manager and expert in equipment for explosive atmospheres with Thorne Derrick based out of the UK. Terry, welcome to the Dust Safety Science Podcast. Thank you for having me. Uh, pleasure to be here. I'm really excited for this episode. This actually goes back to a LinkedIn post that I saw Terry put on on LinkedIn about fake ATEX products and a presentation that he's giving at the upcoming Hazard X conference. I think that'll be March 1st, 2023. So if you're a listener listening to this episode of the podcast, I think it's going to come out March 7th. So Terry will just have presented this presentation on fake products and certificates at Hazard X. We're going to get a, a link at some point to add to the show notes. So you can go get that presentation from him. Um, we'll have links to Thorne Derek's website and that at the end of the podcast show notes as well. Also, wait and contact Terry. So that'll be at dustsafetyscience.com slash 216. That's the numbers 216 for this episode. So back to the point. We saw a LinkedIn post on fake ATEX products from Terry. I'd reached out just to, to ask him about it because this is something we've been hearing more and more and more about through our member companies at Dust Safety Professionals, through end users about challenges in, in many different regions of the world with you know fake systems or fake certificates of systems. And maybe we'll get into what the difference between those two things are with Terry in this episode. We're going to talk about a little bit about how combustible dust might be treated within his work, within the ATEX framework. What is the ATEX framework and how is it supposed to work in terms of certification? How do fake products and certificates make their way into the market? Why does this matter? And I know this is something that Terry is, is very passionate about <laughs> and how big of a problem is it and what can companies do to avoid making the mistake of, of purchasing these products or being um, fooled by these types of certificates. So Terry, just to kind of jump into the discussion, what's your role and what kind of work do you do in industry today to, to set the scene? I've worked with Thorne and Derek now since 2005, been with the company for 18 years. Thorne and Derek's been in business since 1985 and over the years we've grown and we are a distributor of specialist electrical equipment in in the broadest sense and within that we have a division that specializes in equipment for use in explosive atmospheres and i kind of want to get this out of the way right at the start because here in north america for combustible dust there's typically an independent focus on combustible it's like it's like a thing and then you have you know gas and liquid hazardous areas yeah and that would generally be treated under, for right or wrong, a process safety perspective. And here in North America, we talk about combustible dust sort of is this unique thing. From my understanding, in other parts of the world, it's treated differently, where combustible dust may typically be lumped in as another type of hazardous area with gases and liquids and treated under a common framework. I don't want to get into whether or not one approach is better than the other, and they both have strengths <laughs> and, and their challenges as yeah. well. But just for the listener of, of this podcast that's very combustible dust-centric, could you just kind of summarize how is combustible dust treated within Thorne and Derek? And then, you know, how does it tie into this discussion we're going to have about fake, fake systems? Firstly, a little bit of disclosure here. Ultimately, my, my role is to sell equipment and, and I am a salesman. I'm a technically minded person and care passionate about safety. But I, again, have to confess I am not an expert. I wouldn't consider myself an expert by any stretch of the imagination. I often say to people, I know a lot more about hazardous area equipment than the average person on the street, but I would probably know a lot less about dust atmospheres than yourself, Chris, and a lot less than some other people that are involved in the industry. But I do have strong views and I see what, what is good and what is bad. With regard to dust and gas in, in the UK, they are often considered as one, I would say that in the industry, knowledge in the UK is much better when it comes to gas atmospheres than dust atmospheres. Um, people just say and use the terminology explosive atmosphere. Somebody has to actually know and understand a bit more about the regulations to then delve further into the difference between gas risks and dust risks and the, the difference that has on the types of equipment that can and should be used in those areas. Uh, that said, at Thorne and Derek, we 
we take them, treat them as they are separate things, but ultimately we've got to give our clients a product that is fit for purpose and also compliant with the with the regulations. Obviously, if it's a dust area, it, they need to meet those dust regulations. I always recall this example. I asked a customer once who called trying to buy a heater from us. Uh, I asked them if, if the heater needed to be certified for hazardous areas. And their reply to me was, well, it sometimes gets slippy. They were trying to buy a piece of equipment that was required for, um, it was a gas atmosphere, it turned out. But they didn't actually know the first thing about hazardous areas. They wouldn't have been able to tell me if it was zone one gas or zone 21 dust. There is a huge lack of knowledge in in the UK, well, not the UK, in the industry, that even sees the difference between gas hazards and dust hazards. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. And there's there's so much to unpack and so much that's not even core to this topic of the, the fake systems. One, I, I appreciate the view that you kind of break in two stages, right? So this is going to go on a tangent. We'll come, we'll come back. I promise to the audience that we'll come back to fake certificates. But, you know, you can break in two stages. <laughs> yeah, identification okay. of hazardous areas, and you need to have the awareness to know what kind of things could arise, gas, dust, liquids. If you're missing any of those, you may not identify a hazardous area. So then we get to a hazardous area, and then the question is, okay, how do we handle things in that hazardous area? And again, it matters, dust, gas, liquid. I think in North America, we struggle because we have two completely different pathways to identify the hazardous area and two completely different pathways to, to deal with the challenges because we branch very early. Dust on one side of the fence, gas and liquids on the other side of the fence. And then on the, the other side, in other parts of the world, we branch at a different stage and that leads also other challenges. Like you may, it may be harder to make people aware that combustible dust could lead to a hazardous area if you are you know, branching on the solution side of that equation instead of the awareness side of that equation. So there's no right or wrong answer except for talking about it like we're doing on this podcast um, and trying to figure that out. Oh, absolutely. I'm passionate about best practice and safety and, and getting people to listen. As I'll mention no doubt later on, but a big problem is in the industry for, in, from my point of view is training and knowledge of the the people involved and without alienating my customers in and and the particularly the buyers at my customers it's those people who aren't suitably qualified and trained to purchase this type of equipment and and that's because it as as you know there is a lot to learn and even to understand the numbers on a certificate and what they all actually mean is is almost impossible for for someone like myself never mind a buyer who's responsible for probably millions of pounds worth of spends within organizations on multiple different types of products and equipment for them to be experts in specifically hazardous area equipment is impossible and i know that the, en- the engineers within those companies are supposed to lead and help specify and select the correct equipment. But if it if the, the main driver is cost, then it's the buyer that makes that, that decision or can make that final decision on what is purchased. And again, I'll get I'll mention it later, but that's that's how fake products and fake certificates get onto the marketplace because of lack of knowledge or what that's one of the reasons I shouldn't say that's the only reason that's one of the reasons why this equipment is out there you must see similar over in the states it, it is a thousand percent and I, I was going to wait to bring this up <laughs> till later but I double underlined something you said um, so yes it is and it is on the awareness to identify hazard it is on the approach to analyze the hazard it is on the approach to implement the right solutions and choose the right solutions like through the life cycle one that i'd never heard before but that you said is that people need to be trained to purchase this type of equipment and what a it's it's when you say it it's true like that's how the fake atex certificates are getting in the market or the, the fake equipment again it's like the person that's actually making the buying decision or signing off or the process not even the person the process because maybe there should be a couple people looking at it Someone in there is not trained to identify whether or not they're buying equipment that's going to do what they they need at the end of the day. Absolutely, a, a good colleague from one of our suppliers said to me, and it and it stands absolutely true. 
you don't know what you don't know. How how can you know that a certificate is incorrect or wrong if you don't know what it's supposed to say? A certificate might be put in front of someone and it says it complies with standard X. How does that person looking at that certificate not know that it's supposed to comply with standard X and standard Y? They don't. They just believe what's in front of them on a piece of paper. And then they rely on that certificate of conformity and put the trust in the person or the company supplying that equipment that the equipment they are going to receive is is correct. Now, I'd, I know that in, in, in the UK, we operate a coma system, a tier one and tier two coma system, which I'm sure you've heard of. But for anyone uh, listening, that's care of major accidents and hazards. So on sites in the UK that fall into tier one, that's considered to be more da- very dangerous in simplistic terms and tier two dangerous, but less dangerous than tier one. And there's a lot more restrictions and a lot more organizations have a lot more due diligence to do. They have a lot more obligations to their employees and contractors working on their sites. So if they're the reason often that it's a tier one Comicide is because by the nature of it's creating a chemical or a dust atmosphere, a, a sugar, a flour, it then gets classed as a tier one. So that organization tends to have much better knowledge than, than most uh, because they have to. But there's still a lot of industry and a lot of customers that big organizations in themselves would only have a small part, which is would be considered an explosive atmosphere. Um, just as an example, let's say a large organization that has a, a paint a paint shop, a spray, a spray booth. That's their only hazardous area on a however many acre site. So they don't have the knowledge and expertise inside of their organization to be able to purchase correctly certified equipment. They they trust people like Thorne and Derek and other companies to that what they tell them is is true. Now, Thorne and Derek and me personally and my colleagues take our responsibility seriously. And again, probably talk about this later on. Airtex Directive puts all the risk really at the manufacturer of the equipment and the end user. There's very little, almost no risk on the people in between, companies like Thorne and Derek. So that means anyone can sell the equipment. So just today, um, knowing that I was obviously going to take part in this podcast and I will we'll get on to a couple of um, examples and what really sort of drove me to investigate this problem in more detail. There's, there's fake equipment out there and the internet makes it so easy to sell that equipment online through faceless organizations and that's how these products have been sold online. I feel like I'm <laughs> feel like I've got I'm on my soapbox a little bit here, but it angers me that companies will buy from these websites. I can only assume it's because it's a one off one off purchase. I'm sure it's the same same with yourself. We have to go through approved vendor procedures to supply a lot of the companies that we supply. And I'm I'm a big advocate of that. But when a, when one of those companies gets caught out and perhaps is desperate for a piece of equipment, they bypass that approved vendor list and they'll do a one-off purchase via online, use their credit company credit card and buy the equipment. And again, that's how the equipment ends up on site. Yeah. Because nobody's done the due diligence of, of, of the equipment that they're buying. And they believe what they're reading. Today, I'm looking at a website and it says ATEX certified f- ventilation fan. It then goes on to say that it's certified for use in gas and dust atmospheres. Never in, in a month of Sundays is that going to be certified for dust atmospheres. I know that it's fake and, it's, and it, it isn't certified for gas atmospheres. There's no... EX markings, there's no certificates available to download. To me, it, it's blatantly obvious that it's that can't possibly be a correctly certified product. But to a an untrained buyer, professional, untrained person, they are going to believe what's in front of them. So two pieces we've talked about so far. We talked a, a little bit about combustible dust, hazardous area, and how a you know, hazardous area might become to be. I think the discussion now is transitioning more into, okay, we have a hazardous area. What are the right products and how do we know that we have the right products to go into these hazardous areas? 
And we covered sort of a number of points that we're going to cycle back through with the remainder of our, our time on the podcast. I think the first question, the one that we skipped is, so we have hazardous area. How is ATEX supposed to work? <laughs> like how, how before we get into these fake things, which I, we have a ton of stuff to discuss on how to identify fake ones, markings, you know, yep. some things that we can look for that might demonstrate fake. Like how's it supposed to work? What's the, what's the process in your mind in terms of ATEX product development and certification? It's a good question. Uh, and it's a long answer, really. Um, ATEX would lead you to believe that it's about safety. And the people over the years that have developed these directives would have you believe that it's all about safety. Personally, I don't think safety is its primary objective. And I'm, I know I'm not the only one in in the UK and in Europe that think that. The primary objective of Vatex, in my opinion, and at the risk of <laughs> taking some flack uh, for saying this, is restriction of trade. To make it more difficult for com- companies based outside of Europe to obtain an ATEX certificate so, so they can sell their equipment in Europe. And I wouldn't say that that's the ATEX directive restricts trade in Europe. I would argue the in-metro certificate is designed to restrict trade in Brazil or restrict others outside of Brazil going into Brazil. And I would argue that the EAC, EDX uh, certification, same Eurasian conformity, that the purpose of all of them is protecting the local companies. That's what I think is the primary focus of it. Uh, UK is actually going to change to, you may or may not be aware about this yet, we're changing to UK EX scheme as a result of Brexit. Now, that was supposed to start on the 1st of January 2022. The government delayed it a year to the 1st of January 2023. Manufacturers have spent a lot of time, invested a lot of money in recertification, making sure that their products meet the, the right standards so that they can obtain their UK EX certificate. And the UK government has now kicked that back, I think, till 2026 before that is enforceable. So I know that manufacturers have invested and wasted a lot of time over the last couple of years trying to get ready for it. And and the government's kicked it back again. The UK EX scheme is harmonised with the ATEX scheme. So why do we need it? Again, for me, it's about, and I, I sit here as, a, as an English person, it's trying to protect English companies from other companies trading, putting their product onto the UK market. So it, if we, no, if we just, it's, sorry it's, again. Um, <laughs> it's, it's, I've, I've even more thoughts on the safety from, from a from safety point. <laughs> from a safety point of view, it is designed to ensure that any product that finds its way onto the hazardous area market is compliant with the relevant standards. The ATEX directive, and again, I have never read it in word-for-word detail, and uh, this is my knowledge that I've gained over the years and through speaking to our suppliers who are the manufacturers and speaking to the end users who are our customers. The risk that ATEX, ATEX is there to, it puts all the risk on the manufacturer and it expects the manufacturer to know and to be the technical authority on the product that they are producing, which you might think is fair comment. If they're going to develop a product, they should be the technical authority on it. However, there are manufacturers out there that spend 90, 95% of the time manufacturing non-ATEX products, and then one day think, right, we're going to develop an ATEX product, and they haven't got the first clue about ATEX equipment. And it then also puts the risk on the end user and it's the end user's responsibility again to ensure any equipment that they put into use on their site and with their employees, again, is safe and fit fit for purpose and compliant. It's really interesting, the point. So I've got a couple other things that I add to here as you're talking through. I mean, how it's supposed to work is that the the process is meant to identify that a piece of equipment is compliant and safe for use in the type of operation it's being installed for. Um, I'm paraphrasing. I don't know the specific verbiage, but something along those lines. And then ATEX will put the onus, the, the requirement for that for on the manufacturer and then on the end user to 
to ensure that the type of equipment that they have purchased is compliant, has the correct certifications for use in the type of areas that they're installing it in. You brought up some really good points about training the manufacturers, training the people buying the equipment. I think training, training, training might be the summary of, <laughs> of, of, of this episode as we go along. So that's, I mean, that's how it's supposed to work. You introduced a really interesting gap, which I had never thought before, but it answers the question, you know, how do fake products make their way onto the market? So ATEX specifically puts the onus on the manufacturer and on the end user, but there is no onus on the, I think the way you said, like the interface, the people in the, the middle that do, which is... <laughs> the middlemen, which is what I have, that's what Thorne and Derek are. We're a middleman. And I, I've said, I said this in a conference previously, if, if somebody came along and said to me one day that we're now going to put more restrictions and more onus on the middlemen, I would gladly welcome it. People might argue that you're adding unnecessary layers of bureaucracy in there, that you may end up adding additional costs because it would cost Don and Derek more money to perhaps do whatever we needed to do, improve it, to be audited, however it was done. But if it stopped dangerous equipment getting onto the marketplace, then it would serve its purpose. The other thing that I didn't mention with regards to ATEX, and I know it's the same uh, over there, is notified bodies. So the manufacturer is the technical authority. They're supposed to identify which standards their product or piece of equipment has to comply to. And they then have to put that via a, a third party independent notified body who are registered to test that equipment, look at the technical files, and for that notified body to then say, yes, we can confirm and we are willing to sign a certificate that says that equipment conforms to those standards. However, ATEX permits under Zone 2 self-certification, which means the manufacturer can self-certify a piece of equipment as long as it's for use in Zone 2. Not allowed for zone one, but it is allowed for zone two, which admittedly is considered to be a less dangerous atmosphere, but it's still potential for an explosion. Now, again, I've had multiple conversations with people in the industry, manufacturers, end users, customers, and there is a case where self-certification is, there is no other option but to self-certify. It's too costly, cost prohibitive to put a bespoke piece of equipment through certification. I get that. But I don't believe that a manufacturer can self-certify without having some level of conflict of interest because ultimately for them, it's about it's about the commercials. It's about selling the product. And I'll give you an example uh, without naming names, but about 10 years ago, we had a manufacturer approach us uh, with an infrared ATEX heater. And it was for zone two. And the manufacturer came, did a presentation, showed us the product. And Thorne and Derek believed what we were being told. The certificates were in front of us. And we took the product on and we took it to market. And we sold some. We sold quite a few. And within a short space of time, we had two product failures, both on separate, at separate clients. Luckily, it didn't lead to an explosion, but in both instances, the product, uh, the glass shattered and exposed the heater inside of the infrared heater. So we took that back to the manufacturer and asked for them to do their analysis on why that had happened. And they came back and said that the the reason for both instances was that the user, it was end user to blame or user fault, user error, and they hadn't cleaned the glass in line with the operating and maintenance manual, which had led to a buildup of dust on the lens, on the equipment, which had then caused it to overheat and explode. Does, it doesn't sound like it should be that easy. Now, to, that was to a learning curve. Up, but yeah. <laughs> well, that was a learning curve for us. They said it was end user fault we said well this product isn't fit for purpose there's no way that that product can be used in these kind of environments without getting dirty without getting a build-up of dust so we removed it from our portfolio we don't sell the piece of equipment anymore it was a self-certified product that product still remains on the marketplace that manufacturer is still selling that piece of equipment 
I don't think that if that piece of equipment was put through a third-party notified body, that it would ever pass and it would ever get certified because it wouldn't comply with all of the relevant relevant standards. So that's the notified bodies doing their job. I realise I'm I'm probably talking too much. The other problem with the notified bodies in regards ATEX, which is something I've learned, is if a manufacturer goes to the notified body and says, I would like I want you to check my product complies with A, B, and C, that's all the notified body checks. And then they go back and they give the certificate to the manufacturer and say, your product complies with A, B, and C. What happens if that product also should have complied with D, with regulation D? But because the manufacturer didn't ask for that, and this is a, there is an example which links to the fan and the piece of fake equipment that um, most concerns me. There was a fan on the marketplace that complied with 60079, but it didn't comply with 14986. So this is a, just bear in mind, Chris, this is a, vent, a portable ventilation fan. Yeah, for use in hazardous areas, and it 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 had never been assessed for compliance with fourteen nine eight six, which the standard is for design of um, fans for use in potentially explosive atmospheres. Yep. How does that product get onto the marketplace without being assessed for that to that to that standard? And the not, the notified bodies will say it's not their job to uh, consult. The manufacturer, their job is to confirm compliance with the standards that the manufacturer asks asks them to check. Yep. In answer to your question on ATEX, yes, it's supposed to help safety, but it's got a lot of flaws, absolutely. And some people would argue, as far as equipment's concerned, it's yep. a race to the bottom. It's not a race. It's not a race to improve safety. It's a race. To provide to get the cheapest piece of equipment yeah, I mean, out there, I, we should have organized like three podcast episodes, Terry. <laughs> um, if we maybe we should add a call before I had to talk through some of this, but anyway, it's 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 great material. So you made me think about it, and, and this is so. How can I explain it? When I when we originally scheduled this podcast interview, I figured we would be talking about let's call let's call it like black hat fake products. Like you put something in the market that you you know is you you forged the certificate we'll say that you know very or you or you know for sure that it's on certificate that you just made a sheet metal and 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 painted it red and put it on you know a website and and sold it direct to consumer saying that it's certified for use in, in dust and gas but you you know outright that there is no certifications hasn't gone through that process i'd be like let's call it black hat fake products and fake certificates there's white hat yeah uh, and i made up white hat black hat and what i'm gonna call gray hat there's probably better names, but this is on the fly. So White Hat is like, there is a standard in place, but it was a standard approach. There's reputable people involved. Everyone tried everything right. And we still made a mistake as a as a global community. And I think of some examples of that. I won't necessarily bring them up right now, but that over the last few years, even, we've seen standardized testing processes for pieces of equipment be identified and set up and formalized in an incorrect way that was not representative of of the use of that equipment in industry. And then we'd test against that standard. And everyone thought, hey, these we're, we're doing the best we can. We have a, a large-scale test set up. We're testing against those um, those approaches. And and we made a mistake. <laughs> so now there's all these certificates that are, we'll call them white hat um, certificates that are that were against something that yeah. as a community we, we failed to identify as a challenge. And then there's this whole area in the middle we'll call gray hat. <laughs> that, and that's kind of a lot of stuff that you're bringing up. It's like we certified it correctly against A, B, and C, but we, we didn't know or we left off D and nobody told us. They can be more black. <laughs> like we'd left it off. It wasn't tested for hazardous area at all. And we know we're selling in hazardous area. Or it could be like D was a, you know, a, I, I'm not that good with the marking. So let's say it, we certified against temperature, but we didn't certify against high pressures or something. I don't know making up another state variable. And so that's a whole area in the middle of, of those things. I think that's what you've been talking about a lot is, is these gray, gray areas. How big a problem is this? Is this only half a percent of the equipment out there is, or is it, is it a hitting the bottom line? No, I, think, I think it's, I think, I think it's, the issue is it? I think I, I, there's a slide in my, there's a slide in my presentation and I just used, I used the image of an iceberg. Yeah. We're just scratching, scratching at the surface. We sell a, a, a correctly certified fan, 
and I've lost countless um, orders to this fake product. Now, I take what you're saying. There are there's there's, there's mistakes that are happening. This fake product define fake people. I think it's people know that you see fake clothing, fake handbags, not necessarily with hazardous areas, but I know, I am aware of the problem in industry where actual fake counterfeit products are manufactured in various locations that are designed to rip off, absolutely rip off the consumer, the end user. And I'm talking instruments. Uh, it's one of the, um, um, I don't want to name them because they're a big organization, but it's, it's a, it's a big problem for a very large organization who make, Equipment. um, instruments yeah so that that's one thing my presentation that i'm going to give focuses on uh, as a as a case study as an as an example um we saw that when we first saw the product online we instantly thought hang about that 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 can't be and we did some did some digging and we we got a we got a certificate we 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 asked we, we were given a certificate for the equipment and Again, the certificate was by a, a reputable notified body, uh, or at least their their name was on there. So we went straight to the notified body to say, "Have you issued this certificate?" And they were they were aware of it, but the certificate hadn't been issued as anything other than a as a draft. And the manufacturer had taken the draft, removed draft from it, and were using that certificate as proof that it was a certified piece of equipment. Now that's fraud. It's, it's fake. It's yep. that's, that's wrong on so many levels. So that's, that's a fan. I've spoke to people and doing some research. I've, I've been in touch with a gentleman who's battled against, they, they manufacture a, a vacuum cleaner for hazardous areas. And he's battled for 10 years against other equipment manufacturers claiming to be certified that aren't um fake pumps i've spoken to people about fake pumps fake motors heaters compressors there's a very large gland manufacturer that is global and in fact i'll on cmp and an ex-employee has been in touch and he's sharing some we're we sharing some information and he again he became aware of how big the problem was when they started running into competitors claiming to have equipment that could do and certified and, and do certain things that he knew just wasn't possible. So it's it's a much bigger problem than than I think what people are aware of. And that's why I, I am an advocate to educate and improve knowledge in the industry. Overall, so the UK HSE, and if it, if it, in terms of market surveillance, if we find a product on the marketplace, then you report it to the HSE. I've spoke to people who work at the HSE or used to work at the HSE, and I spoke to a gentleman once, and he said, yeah, it's, it is a big problem, but we just haven't got the resources to deal with it. So for every fake hazardous area product or dangerous product, if you want to call it a dangerous that might get reported in our industry there's obviously lots of other equipment in in other areas where there's dangerous products finding the well, way out into the marketplace a lack of discussion um, of of instance and upset conditions in general right so if we're not talking about the accidents that accidents and incidents that happen even if internal investigation was completed to identified one piece of equipment was a part of the root cause of that failure you know, chances of the company sharing that out to everyone widely are low because they generally don't want to admit that they had a had an incident if it's it's you know if it's not already public knowledge. So I think you know because I've heard that argument about different types of equipment for explosion protection as well. It's like, well, you know, there's there's uh, this many of those out there and we've never seen it be an issue. <laughs> it's like, well, does that mean that it wasn't an issue? And just means we haven't talked about uh, absolutely. The issue yeah, it may, it may, ex- exactly. Yeah. yeah. Then what does it mean that we haven't heard about? It? Of course, we haven't heard about it. It's it's in the other ninety nine percent. Anyway, go ahead, Terry. Now I'm getting passionate yeah. about it. No, it's, uh, the, the the amount of people that say they'll say I've I've got to buy a piece of certified equipment. We've been using 
this piece of uh, the existing piece of equipment for ten for ten years without any problems. And and I also well consider yourself lucky. <laughs> You're lucky that an accident hasn't happened. Can we just agree as an industry to try and yep. improve? There's all kinds of reasons why this is the case that it's easy to forget. And maybe I'll do another episode later on all the philosophical, the the um, psychological and and whatever reasons that this happens, the bias that we have. But the point I want to make is, you know, I've I'm trying to think how to tell the story in a way. Yeah. So, you know, I've heard stories from individuals of companies that, that walked in elsewhere in the world, not in Canada, not in, in the United States, not in the UK, you know, somewhere else in the world, walked in, talked to the owner of the, the site and said, you know, have you ever had a dust explosion? And it's like, no, um, you know, don't know what you're talking about, never heard of it. Um, and then walked down and um, talked to the supervisor team, you know, to go look at the, the operation. And, and there's the guy on the control panel has got burns up and down his arms and ask you know, ask like, hey, hey, how that? What happened there? I said, oh, you know, this, this, I'll make up the equipment. The, this bin um, had had dust in, had deflagration, flashed off. You know, burned my burned my arms. I'm going to be scared forever. <laughs> it's like I don't necessarily think that 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 the owner or the site supervisor, whoever time was maliciously saying, no, we ever had an incident. I do, I do believe in people a little more than that in my my faith hasn't been beat out of me yet in this market, but I believe that, yeah. you know, it just, it's like, it didn't really, it, it was important for a while. Now it's not important anymore. <laughs> it's like, that's how easy it is to forget. Right. And, and that's just a stark example. And I won't name names or, or people of uh, places for that, but that's a, that's examples like, Oh no, we've never had that happen. You, you go talk to guys like this, this guy's changed for life. Like, what do you mean? It's never happened. I won't name names, but a lot, a very large global organization had an accident 18 months ago and it was static electricity uh, was the root cause. Caused life-changing injuries to the the gentleman that was injured. And within two, uh, six weeks, eight weeks of the accident, a huge investment on site on uh, static uh, earth monitoring systems to prevent it, prevent it from happening again. Couldn't help but feel for such a large organization that should have been in place before the accident occurred and then the accident wouldn't have occurred. I do sometimes feel like it takes an accident or or at least a near miss to focus minds of some of these employers and operators to do, to do things right. And I I, I always go, I'm going to keep going back to training and knowledge. I was visiting a client uh, just before Christmas and they had an issue with a, a heater. They sent me an image of the heater and said that it wasn't heating up enough. It said it wasn't getting hot enough. And I saw that basically one of the way that they had the, the heater mounted, I knew straight away that was actually against the certification, uh, special conditions of use because they were essentially blocking the inlet the way that they had it mounted. Just think of it. If you think of a hairdryer, as soon as you, you block the inlet of a hairdryer, it rapidly overheats. So my my reply was, please don't use that heater again. Make sure that no one can switch it on, and I'll come. We'll come to site and we'll discuss what your options are, which I did. And the site had every light fitting was a hazardous area light fitting certified. The uh, the heater was a certified heater, albeit it was mounted incorrectly. And they were doing some. Occasionally, they were doing some spray work. It was body body repair work for a, a council. Uh, here in the UK, so you think, okay, well, they know they, they're doing some of this right. And then I looked over at, at where a lot of the power supplies were coming from, and it was all standard UK plugs and socket arrangements. None of the none of the actual power equipment inside of this room was certified equipment. And I just couldn't help but you've somebody somewhere has decided that you need hazardous area lights and hazardous That's area heater. Yeah, and it's all plugged in. And if anyone's listening who might be think they're clever and would say, well, maybe that's all outside of the hazardous area. It wasn't. The whole area was classified as a zone two area. They should have all been hazardous area plugs and sockets. And I brought obviously brought it to their attention and they were like, thanks for share. Thanks for bringing that to our attention. We'll do something about that. But again, I was, this is happening. No, it's not if another accident's going to happen. It's when the accident happens. 
How many times does an accident or a near miss happen that nobody every, ever gets to know day, about? As far as I can tell, because we're we're actually finding real accidents that happen, real explosions happen almost every day somewhere in the world. Um, so I can only imagine what we're not finding, yeah. and that's got to be a hundred times more. What I want to do, Terry, is because uh, this was a phenomenal discussion on this topic. I'd like to see if we can set a point in your calendar after March first. So you're going to go to Hazard X. Where where is Hazard X? I don't have it up here, but yep. just uh, so folks. The conference is taking okay. place in a town called Harrogate, even the UK. Harrogate um, International. Um, I was going to say International Convention Center, it's not. Um, what I want to say is, is you're going to go there March 1st, do your presentation. Yeah. I'd like to have you back on the podcast. We'll probably do the recording sometime later on in March and be released in um, April, say, to to discuss some of the feedback you had, like the top five questions people had or top five discussion points um, on your presentation. Because I think that would be a, a, an interesting way to, to cap off a lot of the points we brought up here. Yeah, absolutely. I'd be keen, keen to do that. I'm... I like anything, anything that helps educate people. If it, if, if it helps, if, if this conversation is heard by one person that thinks yep. we need to get our house in order and make things safer, then. Well, let's, let's do that. Let's. Yeah, good. I want to leave off. <laughs> I feel like I've achieved something. Because there will be, I think there will be people that are, we listen to this that will be very interesting. I like to just leave off with a couple of points of how folks can protect themselves. So a couple of you already mentioned, I mean, one is work with reputable sales organizations, dealers, uh, you know, like work with somebody who knows what they're doing um, at the end of the day. Look for the correct markings. Yeah. Educate and train yourself on what those markings are. Look for certifications. Ask, ask, look for certificates, yeah. rather. Ask for certificates if you're not getting them. Um, potentially check up on notified bodies to see what the status of that trip is. I don't know how easy or hard that is to do, but, you know, those are some items. What If we just want to run a, run a short list of other things people could do to protect themselves, what other things come to mind for you, and then and then we'll close it off for today. Yeah, I mean you, you've you've probably just you've said what I would uh, say. To be honest, uh, firstly, you've got to improve knowledge and training of of your persons responsible. Yes, you should check the certificates and declaration of conformities, and you sh- nobody should be using equipment before going through that due diligence process. And the, the fake fun piece of equipment that I've uh, talked about a little bit in this podcast, I've got a handful, six or seven clients that made the mistake of buying the fun, but they're person responsible for signing that piece of equipment off before it was allowed to be used on site, realized that the, the uh, paperwork and the certificates that uh, they'd been given weren't up to standard and that's when they got in touch with us and so i've got a handful of clients that in fact one of them helped us in providing some of the information to prove that this fund was was a fraud was a fake absolutely use trusted and approved vendors but why should somebody trust me why should somebody trust Don and derek the end users the people buying this equipment should have approved vendor procedures a lot of them do, and this is something else which I think they can do specifically. I fill in, uh, well, sorry, not me personally, but sometimes it's me personally, but Don and Derek probably have to complete at least one vendor approval document per week. I'm yet to see a vendor approval document from a Coma Tier 1 or Tier 2 site, which I mentioned earlier, Chris, uh, which I know is specific to the UK. But I'm yet to see a vendor approval document that, focuses in any way on hazardous area equipment it's a lot more generic so if you're if you are that end user that owner operator of the very harsh and hazardous site surely your vendor approval should take that into consideration when you're approving that vendor for supply of that such equipment and i think that that's absolutely missed in the industry just are conscious of time. So um, we, we, you've got to uh, manage uh, the competency and check the competency and monitor the competency of the people on, of your employees, the people that you are using. I think the notified bodies need to take more responsibility in, in preventing incorrectly certified equipment getting onto the marketplace and, and tr- training schemes. In the UK, we've got Compex 
which helps a little bit in improving the competency. I'm sure you've got similar things over in the US and Canada. To be able to prove that a person is competent rather than for them yep. to just be able to say that they're competent. I think, yeah, that's, essentially that would be the things that could be changed relatively uh, quickly. Yeah, I, I can't would agree more. I, I got a list here that maybe I'll run through in the summary, but I want to I want to close it off for today, Terry. I'm tremendously valuable discussion. I don't know. I seem I've I've had a number of folks on the podcast from the UK. We had Alan Tildesley back in episode ten. That was like four and a half years ago. <laughs> Keith Flum, we've had on back nice. in episode one sixty nine and one sixty seven of the podcast, and we've I'm sure we've had other folks in the UK on as well. It always seems like the discussion meanders and expands in a way that's really helpful, I think, for the audience that they really enjoy um, and that is actually quite insightful. And I, there's a reason probably why we had Keith on for two episodes because he probably expanded so much that we said, oh, we need to have you on again. And, and funny enough, that's what's happened with you, Terry. <laughs> so we, we're going to have you back on in March after Hazard <laughs> X to cover what kind of feedback, discussion, questions people had, what they found valuable and what they're their even their their fears are in in this process in this market and then how we can handle those together and i'm sure that that even won't be the last time we have on the podcast because we we appreciate your your involvement in the work that you do so thank you so much for coming on thank you for inviting me and thank you for giving me the opportunity and like i say hopefully somebody if one person does something differently that results in safety improvement then couldn't agree more so you're listening to myself, Dr. Chris Cloney, and Terry McDonald, Sales and Business Development Manager with Thorne and Derek, and he's based out of the UK. And we've been talking about, I guess the original title is looking over fake ATEX products and certificates. That's still going to be the title of this episode, but we covered a ton of ground. I mean, we discussed what Thorne and Derek does, what Terry does, where his passions lie in understanding companies and how to get safe products implemented on their sites. And we talked about directives like ATEX and how the process, you know, what the what the strategy is there. We're trying to enforce compliance and certify typical use cases for equipment that are put into the market. ATEX specifically puts the onus on manufacturers and users of those equipment. And we talked about sort of this ideal way the process is supposed to work. We also discussed a lot of challenges that can come up in this process. In particular, uh, Terry, we talked about, you know, restriction of trade and other ways that systems like ATEX and others change, I guess, the sales market within different regions of the world. Now that can influence and play against and with the the need for safety for those applications. It also is a very complex relationship with notified bodies because then who says what is good? And I've seen cases of countries, yeah, I won't pick the country, um, but you know, I've seen cases of countries where they've said, nope, we have to do testing in our country. And then the providers look and go, well, who's going to do it? And they say, okay, well, we'll call him, we'll say Bob. It's Bob's not a real name, but you know, well, Bob's going to do it. He can do it at, at the university, we'll say. <laughs> and so then the providers bring their equipment over and say, okay, Bob, time to test the equipment. And Bob says, well, I don't know the first thing about testing explosion equipment. <laughs> it's like, well, okay, we have to certify in this country using their, using their requirements, which makes it better portrayed for them. But there's no actual subject matters, matter experts or infrastructure or sites to be able to test this type of equipment in that country. So anyway, that's an example of a complex relationship between the people that are doing the testing. And, and Terry brought in all these complicated relationships between sales, between the intermediaries, between the equipment manufacturers and end users. And, and that's where the, the discussion uh, expanded quite a bit. One of the gaps we found was the gap between the selling of the equipment, the manufacturing the equipment, and then users. I think that's where a lot of these fake products and certificates are coming in. Uh, Terry gave a ton of good examples and things like just, you know, finding equipment online and buying it that way and sort of trusting what's said in those statements. We, we branched off into three areas for this. We, and I called them white hat, black hat, and gray hat, where, you know, black hat would be like, it's a, Terry used a really good word. It was, um, it's counterfeit, you know, black hat. It's just, it's, it's made up. It's not real. It, uh, it doesn't have certificates. It was done in a way that is, um, oh, rightly obtuse and, and, things were left out like you know that's kind of the counterfeit end of the spectrum there's the white hat end of the spectrum where you know things were all done correctly and either an innocent mistake was made or the technology wasn't up to date for example if we had a testing system for organic dust and we applied that and said yep this is certified for use and then all of a sudden we learned 
the metal dust have radiation high temperatures and that they no longer fit that model. That'd be example. Now we're past that. We know that metal dust have different testing requirements now, but you know, 20 years ago, 30, 40 years ago, we may not have known that. I was going to white hat and there's a whole span of gray in the middle, which gets into all these items that, that we talked about. We promised to get a hold of Terry again after his Hazard X presentation. Hopefully if you're at Hazard X, you met him, um, saw his presentation there. Uh, a week ago, what times will come out. And we left off this episode just with a number of things that companies can do to increase their chances of, of getting you know, correct equipment installed. Work with vendors that are um, reputable, that have the knowledge background, can demonstrate the knowledge and background through their own competency certifications or whatever the processes are there. That's one. Look for correct markings. Educate yourself on what markings are needed. Look for correct use cases. Uh, Terry mentioned a really good example of a heater that was purchased correctly but installed incorrectly such that it could overheat and cause issues. Ask for demand certificates. Fact check, fact check on certificates that come out. Improving your improved, your, your approved vendor process. You know, if the approved vendor process is just to collect the bank details on how to pay them, well, that's probably not extensive enough. <laughs> um, so improve that process as much as you can. I don't know if you ask for references on the sort of stuff, but maybe ask for references to other companies that are in your, your area that work with these companies that you can talk and ask some questions about. Those might be some ideas um, and, and much, much more. So two things. When this comes out, it will be March 7th, I think, 2023. Send me an email, chris at dustsafetyscience.com or reach out to Terry. We will have his contact details or a way to contact him in the show notes at dustsafetyscience.com slash 216. Yeah, send those questions through. And when we do the second episode with Terry, we will... Uh, We'll, we'll ask him those questions as well. And we're also going to cover the stuff that you learned at Hazard X and the questions that people were asking there. So that is it for this bit of a longer episode of the podcast. But I hope you found it really interesting. I know I sure did. I learned a ton. As always, I want to say thank you for listening to the podcast. I appreciate the work you're doing in combustible dust and all industries that are um, have hazardous areas in them out there in the world. Hope you have the same productive week ahead. I look forward to talking next week on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs>